Okay, we are in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. And we're going to start reading from, from verse 22. Acts 22, 22. They listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their coats and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let, him, uh, let go of him. And the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had put him into chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so he just finishes giving this very brief testimony back earlier in chapter 22 where he spoke, oh, I don't know, maybe a minute or two. That's it. And then all of a sudden he says that he was going to go to the Gentiles. And at that point they cut him off. And, and, and because there were rumors about Paul that he had been teaching Jews that they did not have to be circumcised, and that wasn't true at all. Remember, he even had uh, Timothy circumcised, so he never said that. But they figured that if he was doing that, that he would, he would uh, uh, get Gentiles converted to Judaism without the need for circum- circumcision. And when they heard this, and remember the initial accusation was that he had brought Gentiles into the, the, the inner court of the temple. And so they, they said he has no right to even live in verse 22. Look at the accusation. This, he should not be allowed to live. And they were crying out and they were throwing, and they were tossing dust in the air. So the commander comes and takes him, has him stretched out with thongs. So they put him on this, this, platform where they're about to scourge him and undergo this Roman scourging. And, and Paul just asks a question. He doesn't do anything but ask a question. All he says, he says to the centurion, so remember that it was the Kiliarch, the man who was over a thousand troops. So you have ten centurions under this Kiliarch, under this commander. And so one of the centurions, one of the commanders of a hundred is overseeing this scourging. And he says... He says uh, to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So there, there were two violations here. Number one, you could, not, you, you could not scourge a Roman citizen. Number two, you, you couldn't uh, 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 even bind a Roman citizen. So you could not scourge a Roman citizen and you could not uh, uh, execute a punishment without a trial. And in fact, you weren't even to bind him without a proper accusation. 
And so Paul asks this simple question. Now think of what's happening here. Paul had just been beaten to within an inch of his life by the Jews. He had given a short testimony to the Jews. And they go ballistic. And here now he finds himself on a table stretched out, naked, about to be beaten. All of this is happening within the, within the course of, of an hour or less. Maybe 30 minutes. That's it. Maybe even less than 30 minutes. All of this is happening. This is quite a lot to come upon a life. Remember, he's still all bloody. His ears are ringing. His eyes are swollen from, from this beating that he got from the Jews that were trying to kill him before the Roman guard came in and saved him. And he looks up and he says, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and said to him, What are you about to do? Look what the centurion does. He hears this, A Roman? He goes to the centurion, to, to the uh, Achilliarch, and he says, What are you about to do? <laughs> I have nothing to do with this. I don't know if you've ever sensed when trouble is brewing. You know, you step back and you're like, <laughs> nothing to do with this. This is not my idea. I'm not doing anything. I'm just minding my own business. And this is what the centurion was like when he hears that this man may be a Roman. He wants nothing to do with this. He goes to the Kiliarch. The Kiliarch comes down the commander and says, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul says, yes. And the commander said he bought his citizenship at a very large price. And, and you, see, you, you see back uh, over in, in chapter 23, verse 26, the commander's name is Claudius, Lys, uh, uh, Claudius Lysias. And that's because he bought his citizenship from Claudius. So there was Claudius and then there was Nero. Claudius was, was, uh, was uh, uh, the Roman emperor. And under Claudius, one could buy citizenship at a great price. Now, Paul, being from Tarsus, did not automatically make him a citizen, because Tarsus was a free city, but it was not a Roman colony like Philippi. If you were born in Philippi, you could be a Roman citizen, but not so if you were born in in, uh, uh, Tarsus. And in fact, to be a Roman citizen, there were really only three ways at this point. One was you bought it at a great price. Another was you got it for service, for some service to the emperor, or to, to the kingdom of Rome, they, they, you could be granted citizenship, some great act of service, or to be born to a Roman. So you had to be born to a Roman. So obviously Paul wasn't born to a Roman. Uh, I'm sorry, obviously Paul had to have been born to a Roman because he didn't get this from buying it, because he says he was born into it. And, and uh, Paul didn't get it for any great act of service. So maybe his parents or some generation before him had done some great act of service in order to get this. So he himself was born a citizen. So therefore, it says they, in, in verse 29, they immediately let him go. And, and you know, they're kind of concerned here because they had had him in chains. They had set him to, about to scourge him. But imagine what the man went through. Now look what he says. He doesn't say to them, you guys, you, Mr. Kiliarch, you're going to hear from my lawyer. He didn't do that. All he asked was a simple question. Is it lawful for you to, to uh, scourge one who is a Roman and uncondemned? 
two things here. He's going to scourge one who's a Roman. Secondly, he was uncondemned. You're about to violate two things. He points that out just with a question. The way we approach people, even if we're on the right, makes a big difference in the way they respond to us and the way they open to us. The way we respond to people. And it's, it's amazing how litigious our environment has gotten and Christians have bought right into this. You know, my lawyer's going to do this, my lawyer's going to do that. You know, it's just amazing that we, we, we forget the verses where, where we're not supposed to bring people to earthly courts. And how quick we are to pull out this gun. And the Scripture says, go in to try to make peace with people. Even if you're on the right. Let me give you an example. There have been things, not at Rice University, at, at the university where I used to teach, where, where um, things that I would do on campus uh, uh, got, got some of the some students complained to the administration. The administration came back to me and they said, you know, you, with your Christian things that you're doing, we've talked with our legal counsel and you may indeed be breaking the law. And I knew I wasn't breaking the law and they said, you know, you shouldn't do this, da 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 da, da. So I wrote them a letter and I said, I think you need to address this with your counsel. Let me clarify, I wasn't breaking the law. This is what I actually did that the students were concerned with. But if you think that that's all I do, let me tell you all that I do on this campus. And so I went through and I listed all the different things that I do. And, and, uh, um, and so I explained this to them. And one of the things at issue was that I was putting verses on the top of exams. And, and so the next exam I put a verse on, but it wasn't a verse from the Bible. It was a verse that, that was from George Washington, a quote from George Washington where he talks very specifically about the Holy Son, Jesus Christ. And very specific. And then, so then I asked a question of the administration. Are we allowed to quote George Washington, the father of our country? Or would the administration like to decide what parts of George Washington can be quoted and what can't? You know, no administration, of course, is going to touch that. But I was sure I was on the right. And there was this, there was this uh, uh, organization, this Christian organization, that wanted to take the administration to court because they said that there was enough basis here. And I said, I'll have nothing to do with that. I'm not going to take them to court. I'm just going to point out that I think I'm right. And I met with the legal counsel and I talked with him. He says, you know, you may be right. Because there are very specific laws. If you're going to restrict certain things, you have to do it across the board to everyone. And, and uh, on all things, not just on religious issues. So I explained this to him and he said, y you know, you're probably right. And anyway, we became, I became very good friends with the administration. And I really went quite far in, in pointing out hypocrisy. Let me give you an example. This was a state university. And, and uh, at one point, the, the, uh, the health center had a big display at Valentine's Day in the student center. And in the student center, they were selling condom cards. So you could get this card with a condom in it and give it to your friend for Valentine's Day. And this was at a state university. So I wrote to the administration and I cited state law that talks about how, how sex outside of marriage was illegal. And most states have that, though it's not enforced. And so I said, so what are we as an administration teaching? And I bought a whole box of them, I don't know, 30 or 50 of these cards. And I put them in a box and I mailed them campus mail to the president of the university. And I said, you know, these were being sold in the student center. I thought you might want to know. And I know that there's enough here so that you might want to share them with the board of trustees as well. 
But you know, that man, that president would see me going across campus every Thursday morning to the faculty prayer meeting. And the chapel was right next to his home. And then when I was leaving that university, he brought me in his office and we became very good friends. And, and he said, you know, I want, you, I want to introduce you to my staff. So he brought me out to his staff. This is the president of the university. And he said, I want you to know why the university has been so blessed all these years. It's because this guy is on his knees every Thursday morning in that chapel with other faculty members praying for this place. And he told me, you know, the, the stance that you've taken and what you've done has impacted this place tremendously. And so the example here that I'm trying to show is, you know, I was never really in your face and saying, you know, love it or leave it. And I never threatened them and I would never do it. I said, this is the administration. I have to live with these people. I'll point out hypocrisy, but I'll point it out, you know, you know with sort of jokingly with them. And let them laugh with this and say, so now the guy's stuck with a box of these condom cards. I wonder what he did with them. You know, it's sort of like, you know, what's he, what's he going to do? But the way we respond, and this is exactly what Paul did. And you see the way Paul responded to, to the, the, this office. He said, oh, by the way, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? And that's it. He didn't say to them, I am going to appeal to Caesar and tell, uh, tell, tell uh, uh, the emperor all about what you've done. I mean, that was it. You see what I mean? The way we approach can make a tremendous difference and actually even open the door for more witness rather than threatening lawsuits and this sort of thing. All right, so that's, that's what Paul did. So now look in, in uh, chapter, chapter 33. I'm sorry, chapter 23 of of the book of Acts. So when we saw in chapter 22, verse 30, it said, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so so this Kiliarch in the Antonio Fortress calls together the high priest, the chief priest, and the entire Sanhedrin, and he calls them together. Whether they were all there, all 70 of them, we don't know. But he calls them together. So this is not in their formal place of meeting, but this is there in the Antonio Fortress. And he wants to say, this is not a formal inquiry by the Sanhedrin. He just wants to know, what's the case here? Why was he being beaten in the temple like this? So, in chapter 23, verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So they, they, bring, so they bring in this council, and Paul looks at them. Paul recognizes this is the Sanhedrin. These are the religious leaders here. And remember, Paul had been one of them. Now that was 25 years earlier, but he understood their culture very well. And he looked at them, and it says, Paul looked intently at the council. That's doing this. 
He looked over them. He looked intently at the council. The man was not afraid. He was going to address them. He knew what he was standing for and he looked them right in the eye. And he said to them, Brethren, look at that address. Brethren, my brothers. Remember what Paul has written. He said, Paul said he would give up his own salvation if his Jewish brothers could come to know the Lord. I mean, that's a tremendous sacrifice. Not just his life, but his eternity of fellowship with Christ he would give up if he could for his Jewish brethren. He really loved these guys. He looked at them and he said, Brethren, remember, these are the people that a day before had tried to have him killed in the temple, had dragged him out of the inner sanctuary to the outer sanctuary, kicking him on the ground. If the Roman soldiers had not come, Paul would have been dead. He gives a two-minute testimony, and they shut him up, and they say, you don't deserve to live. And they're tossing their coats in the air and tossing dirt in the air. And he looks at them and he says, brethren, do we understand forgiveness? I mean, look at the way he addresses these guys. Anybody, anybody would have said, you crumbs, you lousy, stinking guys, what you did to me? Look at me. Look what you've done to me. I'm a Roman citizen, you know, and you guys aren't. And this Kiliart kind of owes me something now. No, I mean, he says to them, brethren. Then he says, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. What's he talking about? The high priest hears this and he commands them to be struck on the mouth, which to a Jew is the ultimate of insults, to be struck on the mouth. In our culture, it's, it's an insult. In that culture, it's even more of an insult. He said, I've lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. What is he talking about? What does that have to do with anything? Lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. Look in, in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, remember when he's writing, first, when he's writing to Timothy, Timothy is this guy who he discipled who he considers like his own son. Timothy, he referred to him as his own son. He really loved Timothy. Timothy, he met on one of his missionary journeys, had him checked out. We went over this. And then Timothy became like his personal attendant and learned from Paul. And now Timothy was a pastor of, of, of one of the churches here. And he's writing to Timothy. And look what he says to his inside buddy. This is, this is the conversations between Paul and somebody he really liked. You want to know what Paul said to the people he really liked? This is what he says in verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Sincere faith. He says we're to have love, a pure heart, I'm sorry, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We're to have love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is what we're instructing. We are instructing people to love others, to have a good conscience, and to have faith. And let's look in verse 19 of the same chapter. 
keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So, he says that we are to keep, we'll read from verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Keep faith and a good conscience. Look what he says. He says, my son, keep faith and a good conscience. You are to remain faithful and keep a good conscience. This is what Paul is talking about. Again and again, the man preached a good conscience. He says, if you don't have a good conscience, you're going to become shipwrecked with regard to your faith. Without a good conscience, your faith will be destroyed. Your faith will be destroyed. God speaks to the heart of the believer. We do something wrong, we say something wrong, the Holy Spirit goes, "Uh uh-uh, you're different. Somebody else can say that, but you can't. We pick up the scriptures, we begin to read, and we read a passage and we say, gulp, I'm in violation of this. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. This is what the Holy Spirit does. If we don't respond to these nudges by the Holy Spirit, our conscience becomes seared. And we have a tendency to then dismiss it and to say, ah, it's nothing. Stop reminding me of that. It really is nothing. It's nothing. Well, if it's nothing, why, why do you keep thinking about it? It's really nothing. Well, that's skeletons in the closet. You know, they, they have a way of kicking the door open every once in a while, don't they? This is what happens in the Lord's Supper. He says, let a man examine himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Lord's Supper, and I have heard believers say, look, I'm not ready to take the Lord's Supper. Well, then you have a real problem because it says it is not to hinder us from taking. It says, and so let a man partake. We are to examine ourselves. This is a good thing. Examine yourself. If there's something there, here is what you do. It's very easy. Very easy. We say something wrong to somebody. We say something that's abusive or wrong. As we go to take the Lord's Supper, the Lord reminds us of this. We say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for the thing that I said to that person. And I will make it right this week. I will make it right. I will go and see that person if I can. If I can't see them, I will call them. But I won't write them an email. That is a sissy's way out. Call them. Approach them. Deal with the issue. Deal with it. And then what happens when you deal with it? It is a humbling thing. I'll admit it is a humbling thing. And the further up you move on the food chain of life, you become a graduate student and then a PhD and then a whatever. 
the more humbling it is. But when it is restored, the good conscience returns and the faith grows. Because if we don't deal with these issues, the conscience becomes seared and we become shipwrecked in regard to our faith. It will affect our faith. What does that mean? It means we believe less in God and less in His goodness in our life and less in His working in His life. And we believe less of the fact that God means to bless us and to give to us and to use us. And we believe that less. And so we take hold of this less and we accomplish less because our faith becomes seared and becomes shipwrecked. Because we didn't maintain a good conscience. A good conscience is the Holy Spirit speaking to our heart about what we ought to do, what we ought not to do. You want to know what a man is really like? Ask his children. What's he really like in his home? What's he really like? Or look at his tax return. What's he really like? Does he claim these things he ought to claim? Ought to be claiming. Is he doing that? Is he violating? Is he claiming things he shouldn't? Is he really giving? God sees all of this. God knows it. But the man himself knows this. And the Holy Spirit speaks. And that's why Paul says, look, I live my life with a perfectly good conscience till this day. So what he's saying is, I dealt in sincerity. Not just as a believer, but even when I was one of you, I was sincerely persecuting the church. I thought that that's what I should sincerely be trying to do. But I repented of that. God wants us to get a hold of this thing of a conscience and learn to deal with it. Okay, turn back to Acts chapter 23. So when Paul says this, Ananias commands that he be stricken on the mouth. Well, let's learn something about this man, Ananias. He's an interesting fellow. Ananias is, is in Hebrew, this Hanan uh, uh, Yahu which is Jehovah's gracious. Um, he was, he was um, high priest from 47 A.D. to 59 A.D. He was appointed by Herod of, of uh, uh, Chal- Chalcis, his, who was uh, brother of Herod Agrippa. He was notoriously unscrupulous. Josephus, the, the historian, wrote this of him. He was insolent. He was hot-tempered. He was profane. He was greedy, greedy, and he took for himself all the tithes which were meant for the common priests. Um, he had, he had uh, uh, five years later in 52 AD, he was accused of complicity in an outbreak of violence between Jews and Samaritans. He was deposed from his priesthood, sent to Rome, but, but he was cleared of charges by Claudius at the intercession of Herod. Uh, uh, at the intercession of Herod. He was very pro-Roman in his rule. Interestingly, the Babylonian Talmud, the writings of the, uh, of the, the rabbis, they wrote about him. And they ridiculed Ananias and they called him the disciple of a meat dish, which I'm sure had some special meaning to them at that day, but it wasn't a nice thing. So the rabbis didn't like him very much. 
He was deposed in 59 AD, and in 66 AD he was assassinated by the zealots because of his pro-Roman stance. He was hiding in the aqueducts, which are there in Jerusalem, and you can see them to this day, lots of aqueducts under Jerusalem. He was hiding there, they took him out, they killed him, and they killed his half-brother Hezekiah along with him. So he was, he was a, a particularly uh, uh, unscrupulous man. So um, he arranges, he, he has Paul stricken on the mouth, and then Paul says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? Paul understood very well what the Jews were allowed to do by their own law and what they weren't allowed to do. They were never allowed to strike a man on the mouth. Never. We went through this when we went through the, the, the Gospel of Matthew. That, that when they, they did the same thing to Jesus in striking him. But they were never allowed to do this, let alone during a hearing of any type. They weren't allowed to do this. They could have a man stoned, but they weren't allowed to strike him on the mouth. It was such an insult. And, and uh, Paul, Paul had said this to him, and he, he said, uh, God's going to strike, uh, strike you, and he called him a whitewashed wall. This is the same term, this term whitewashed, that Jesus used of the Pharisees. And the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest this way? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there could be several interpretations of this. Paul may not have been aware that this was the high priest at this time, because this was not the formal gathering, so he may not have been in his formal priestly garments. Uh, it, it could have meant that... that um, uh, he could have meant it sarcastically, that, you know, if he'd have been, you know, a real high priest, he wouldn't have had this done. Or it could have been that Paul is saying, I see no high priest here. The only high priest I know is Jesus, not acknowledging his priesthood. You know, that, that is another alternative. Uh, we're not sure which one it was, but Paul does quote the scripture and said, you're not to speak evil of a ruler of your people. So in other words, had I known that he had been high priest, I would not have said that. Because the office itself demanded respect. That is a good lesson for us to learn. I don't speak evil of the chair of my department. Even though he's younger than me, he doesn't have the seniority that I have, but, but he is the chairperson of the department. And you don't become chairperson because you're oldest and grandest and the most gray hair. You become chairperson because you don't know how to say no when they're trying to look for a chair. And then everybody wishes you their condolences as you serve your three-year term. But they're still the chair of the department. I don't speak evil of the dean or of the provost. Even though I may not agree with everything, I don't speak evil of them. So when people are speaking evil of them, I don't participate. Because I'm not to speak evil of a ruler of the people. This will serve you well in your business life. This will serve you well. Not to participate in those conversations. Even if it's deserved, you're to refrain from it. This is what Paul is saying. But perceiving, the reading in verse 6, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. 
And as he, he, and as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find no wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And a great, ascension, a great dissension was developing. And the commander was afraid Paul would be torn in pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and take him away by, from them by force and to bring him into the barracks. So, Paul did something very interesting. He realized there was going to be no fairness in this investigation. If they are going to strike him on the face for a simple thing of looking at them and saying, my brothers, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. If they're going to strike him on the face for that, right on his mouth for that, he knew. There's, there's no way of getting a hearing here. And so what he did is it perceiving that there were Sadducees and Pharisees, he decided to divide and conquer. The priests, the high priest was a Sadducee. About one-third of the, the Sanhedrin was Sadducees. Two-thirds was Pharisees. And he began to cry out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. Interesting. Again, he calls them brethren. And he said, remember, we talked about before, that in the last two times he identified himself, he, he didn't say, hey, I'm a Christian. He said, I'm a Jew. Now he says, I am a Pharisee. Not, I was a Pharisee. I am a Pharisee. Theologically, I'm a Pharisee. Theology-wise, he believed like a Pharisee. He was trained. He says, and I am the son of Pharisees. In other words, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather were all Pharisees, or that he had been discipled, because we know he was discipled under Gamaliel, one of the chief Pharisees. And so... He said, I'm a Pharisee. Theologically, I'm a Pharisee. And I am on trial this day for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Knowing, it says in verse 7, he knew that this was going to bring a, a, a dissension. He knew it. This was the only way, because if they were to strike him on the mouth for saying, I live with a perfectly good conscience, there was no hope here. So he divided them. And so the Sadducees don't believe in, in resurrections, nor in angels, nor spirits. I don't know how they can read their, their Old Testament then. I mean, angels were appearing all the time. How do you believe this? It's like when I first became a believer. I remember some, some, some other Christians that, that had been in the Lord much longer than I had. They were like, you know, they had known the Lord for like three years. That was brand new. And they were talking about... Satan and demons and things. I said, you believe in demons? And they said, yeah. Uh, it's in the Bible. Oh, yeah. You know, so, you know, there are things here. You may try to wash away, but you've got to tear out a lot of pages from your Bible if you don't want to believe in Satan and in demons. Jesus certainly spoke not just of them. He spoke to them. And there, in verse 9, there came such a great uproar, it says that some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, 
We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken with him. He really divided them and they decided, yeah. And so you see this division now. Maybe an angel did speak to him. Or a spirit. And it really divided them. So much so that this poor commander, who's still worried about you know, his other offense, thinks Paul is going to be torn in pieces in front of him. I mean, these guys were probably you know, taking off their jackets again. Flipping up the collars. <laughs> Whatever they did back then. But they thought Paul was going to be torn into pieces. I mean, the man can't speak without trouble coming. It's just trouble every time the man speaks. You think that when you speak it causes trouble? I've felt that way about myself sometimes. But I'm nothing compared to Paul. Paul was the best at it. He just gives his testimony and they want to kill him. He goes in the temple to pray. They want to kill him. Here he just says, I'm, a, I'm on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. They want to kill him. All the time. This is the man's life. Hey, where's the effective witness here? We'll talk more about that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Scriptures, for your Word. Father, thank you for the life of Paul and the lessons we learn from this. Lord, I thank you that this man could forgive, could walk in accordance to your Word, could call men his brothers after they've tried to kill him, could approach authority in the right way. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercies. How good you are. Lord, I pray for these young people that you give them a hunger for your word. And Father, you would give them a passion to maintain a clear conscience. If they have to go back and call people or meet with people to apologize just for what they've done rather than bringing into remembrance what the others have done just for their part to apologize. Father, I pray you would do that so that they would maintain a clear conscience and be free and so they need not become shipwrecked in regard to their faith. Father, have mercy on them, I pray. Work in these young people's lives, I pray, by your grace and by your mercies. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.